Holy Spirit, we invite you in. And Lord, as in the worship, we've heard the theme this morning is that God loves us. But God, we don't feel love sometimes. Sometimes we feel distant from you. Sometimes we feel unworthy of that love. Throughout the week, we experience and do and see and, and, and we feel the weight of our sin. And the enemy knows that because he's sitting there waiting for us. Even as we're singing this morning, he's whispering into our hearts about our unworthiness. And our worship feels less joyful and our, 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 our walk with you feels less. I pray, Holy Spirit, right now that you, by your strength and your power, would take the words this morning, and as we look at this next attack of the enemy, that, that we would understand how your righteousness is our shield, that we would wear it, and that it would protect us from ourselves and from the enemy. In Jesus' name, amen. We started a new series last week on the armor of God, and we're calling it um, Unseen Enemy. And this morning, we're talking about layers of righteousness. But let's recap what we talked about last week to make sure that we're all on the same page. We were, we're walking through Ephesians chapter 6, which of course is the classic Armor of God series, um, scriptures. Now, you've heard this sermon before, you've heard teaching on this before, but I'm hoping to maybe give you a fresh insight into this, because I know that that's been uh, the case for me. Uh, last week, we looked at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14, and it says, Stand firm then with a belt of truth buckled around your waist. Now, it'd be great if the belt of truth that we had had a 75-foot cable uh, launched out of it. One of the themes you're going to see in the, in the sermon videos beforehand is a hero needs equipment. You need equipment to be able to do what you do, whether you are a spy or a Batman or what you'll see next week. You need equipment to do what you do. Paul tells us as Christ followers that God has made us that equipment. He's given us what we need to be able to survive our faith, to survive what we need to do, but also not just survive but thrive. But what we've done is we've set these things aside and we've gone, oh, that's quaint, that's nice. But what we've forgotten is that we are at war with an enemy. The closer we draw to God, the more important we become to the enemy. Understand something. When you are drawing close to God, you become very important to the enemy because you are suddenly awake, you are suddenly awakened to the potential that you have in God. And all the devil wants you to think and all he wants you to believe is you're worthless, you're no good. Um, he doesn't want to disturb you at all because if you are not living for the kingdom, then you are exactly doing what he wants you to do. So at a time of teaching or a retreat or a moment of spiritual awakening, you need to understand that that moment... The devil wants to come in and wants to pluck it from you so that he takes away the joy. He takes away what, what's going to take place in that. We talked about um, assumptions about the supernatural word. See, we are taught by the Bible that we are supernatural beings. I said this in our Holy Spirit series, that this gathering is a supernatural gathering. It's not a social club. It's not a performance. It is a time of, of the bodies of Christ from wherever part of the city you live coming together to meet and, 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 and experience something that's greater than we can understand. But what, what people have done in, in, in our world today is that we've decided that this idea of uh, supernatural is, it, it's, it's comical. It's Casper the Friendly Ghost. It's Ghostbusters. It's, it's these type of things. And we've lightened what, we've, what, what we shouldn't have lightened. So there's three assumptions we need to understand about the supernatural realm. The first one is we can never know the separation. You don't know 
when, when, when you are being attacked, you don't, you don't know what the separation is between it. We think that we are far separated from it, but we don't. The second thing we need to understand is we can be affect, we can affect it and be affected by it. One thing the Bible teaches very clearly is that you are affected by the unseen realm in ways you don't understand. But you can affect it for others and for yourself as well. And thirdly, the, the, the last assumption is we are all involved whether we like it or not. You people say, oh, you know, that's just quaint. No, you know, I, I think the Bible to be a metaphor and it's all, you know, stories put together by some guy, some church, you know, the Catholic church put together in the third century. And that's what the Bible really is. Problem is, that's what the Bible says about itself. That's not what Jesus teaches. And you know what's interesting about Jesus is that he teaches many things, but he spends a great deal of time talking about the unseen realm. Talking about the devil, talking about how he attacks us. It, it, it's very interesting. It's like he's trying to get, give us something. This morning, we're going to continue on with our series. And we're going to look at this idea in, in chapter 6, verse 14, the secondary part. Because Paul goes on to say, he, he says, Stand firm with the belt of truth buckled around your, uh, your, your waist. That is in verse 14. But then he goes on to say, With the breastplate of righteousness in place. So he says the secondary part that we need to make sure we understand with the armor of God is this breastplate of righteousness. Now, remember I said to you, do not get obsessed with the armor. The armor is not as important as what Paul is trying to teach us, which is how the enemy will attack you. Remember, armor is meant to be a defensive piece of material that you use because of the attack that's coming to you. And so when Paul is trying to tell us about the armor of God, what we've done is we've gotten so obsessed with the armor of God. Oh, I need to have these pieces put in place. But what we've forgotten is the armor is meant to be a defensive piece that God wants to give us that how the enemy is going to attack us. So the next uh, part of it is righteousness. Truth was our first line of defense. Righteousness is the next. Now, let me confess something to you. When I first sat down to begin to write this part of the sermon, I thought I knew what righteousness meant. And as I began to dig into this word righteousness, I realized something. I was way out of my depth on this. Like I had no idea what, how, how deep Paul was talking about what righteousness was. Now, righteousness is a funny word because we don't use it very often anymore. We don't really think of it anymore. So the first question we have to answer is, what is Righteousness. How is this a defensive posture against the enemy? And the secondary question we have to answer is, how can it protect us? Because the other parts, the other pieces of, of the armor that Paul describes, they, have, they make sense. But this particular piece goes, how is righteousness a, 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 a piece of the armor? Why is Paul saying that? I was actually almost tempted of taking this particular scripture, this, the, these few words, and actually breaking into two weeks, because I realize there's so much going on in, in what Paul's talking about. And I will say to you that as I, I, what I thought righteousness was, there is so much more below the surface. So let's just kind of uh, jump into it. Let me introduce you first and foremost to the Lorica Segmentata. The Lorica Segmentata is the breastplate of a Roman soldier. The standard armor of the first century was a Lorica Segmentata, which is a segmented armor. It was constructed of strips of iron 
joined together with hooks or straps. It covered the chest and the shoulders, affording good protection from spears, missiles, and swords. This is how Paul, when Paul's thinking about the breastplate of righteousness, this is what he's thinking about. This strips of armor, this, 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 you putting together armor for a soldier, for a frontal assault from the enemy. Now, one thing I want you to, to keep in mind is, as, as this, the Lorica Segmentata, is a breastplate of righteousness, is, is meant to be for us, Paul is going to weave in four concepts to make sure we understand righteousness. Now, the word that Paul uses uh, for righteousness, the, the way he looks at it, has actually four components to it. So when we think about righteousness, what we need to think about is not just righteousness, but we have to think about right judgment, which is God's justice. We need to think about right relationship, which is his covenant. We need to think of right receiving, which is the gift of righteousness. And finally, we have to talk about the right acting, which is the process of righteousness. The word that Paul uses for righteousness is a Greek word called dikaisu. Um, now, the, part, the interesting about, part about this word is that it actually has roots in Hebrew as well. So righteousness is part Old Testament, part New Testament. And that was what freaked me out a little bit about it. When I began to examine this word, I realized something. Paul is not just trying to say, you know, righteousness. If I was to say to you, what does righteousness mean? Many of you would say, well, to be right, or right acting, or right attitude. And that is, sure, the surface of it. But when you begin to look at this word, Paul puts this word together, and he uses it a few times, especially in the book of Romans. This word is literally littered all over the book of Romans. When Paul talks about righteousness, you need to understand something. He's trying to, he's trying to unpack a very deep concept. And when I began to realize this, 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 this idea of righteousness, I realized something. When Paul weaves together righteousness for us, I understood why this was a, a piece of armor. I understood how it protected us. But to understand that, let's kind of walk through if, uh, to, to take a look at the first part of it. The first part of righteousness is right judgment. Righteousness is seen as a, a, a judicial piece of understanding of God's character. Like, for example, in Amos chapter 5, verse 21 to 24, it says this. Now, look what God is saying. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but... Let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Justice and righteousness are two concepts in the Old Testament that God seems to care about a great deal. And as a matter of fact, when you look at these words, justice and righteousness are always paired together uh, uh, most times in the Old Testament. Now, look what he's saying here, though. God is saying, I don't like your church services. I don't like the money you put in tithe. I don't like your worship times. And the reason I don't like any of that is because you don't have justice. You don't understand righteousness. And because you act unjustly or unrighteously, I will not accept any other parts of you. So when, when, when Paul is saying that we need to have righteousness as our breastplate, righteousness as our covering, the first part of righteousness you need to understand is righteousness is legal term. It is a term of, of justice. Now remember something as well. God is passionate about justice. He's not just passionate about justice because he's not just passionate about justice because he wants to tell us about right and wrong. 
But what we have to understand as Christ followers is that what is happening in this world that we live in is a great deal of injustice. Where poor are not uh, represented properly. Where people are being uh, abused and, and, and mishandled by the society. Why? Because justice is not in place. And, and, and God says about his justice, his justice is true justice. So whatever righteousness is, the first piece of it, the first uh, piece of armor, the pr- first strap of armor we need to put in place is righteousness is linked to God's justice. It, you, cannot, you cannot separate this concept. The second piece of uh, righteousness is covenant. Now, this is going to be interesting because part of us, we, we, we don't really understand the word covenant. Now, covenant is... This, uh, this arrangement that is made between two parties. Now, let me explain to you Old Testament covenant. In the Old Testament, when you entered into a covenant with somebody, what would happen is, is you are saying to that other party that I will support you in any endeavor. I will support you financially. I will support you with military might. I will support you in whatever way relationally. And in the covenant relationship, I will take a piece of your name. The, the best representation we have of covenant relationship is a marriage ceremony. That's why the switching of, of, of a person's name. In the Old Testament, when, when you made a covenant with somebody, you took their name on. So, for example, Abram and Sarai entered into a covenant with God. So, Abram became Abraham and Sarai became Serha. Because, remember how, what, what, how God describes his name? Yahweh. So the ha sound is is piece of God's name. So when Abram entered into a covenant with God, he became Abraham. When Sarai entered a covenant with God, she became Serha. They took a piece of God's name to show they were in covenant with God. Now, a covenant relationship was a very complex, it it had legal parts of it, but it it was primary relational. Now, in a covenant relationship, if you went to war, if you went to battle with a village next to you or, or, or a landowner next to you, they're stealing your sheep, they're stealing your cattle, they're stealing your property, and you go out to battle them, well, I'm going to battle with you. Why? I'm in covenant with you. Your well-being is my well-being, and my destruction is your destruction. In covenant, you have actions that you must, have, you must take place in order to fulfill covenant. And righteousness is covenantal. Look, look for example, what... Uh, in uh, Hosea, I will betroth. Now, betroth again, kind of an old English word. I will betroth. I, I put in brackets promise or covenant. You to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice. Again, the pairing of those two words. In love and compassion, I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. Whatever righteousness is, it finds its, its foundation in justice. It finds its relationship in covenant. So that when we are in covenant relationship, God acts a certain way. Now, remember what, uh, remember what, the, what Jesus says on the night that he's betrayed, right? He says, I'm creating a new covenant with you, right? The, the Passover meal becomes a new covenant. We're celebrating the Passover this meal this morning. We call it communion. That is a representation of covenant. When we enter into a covenant with God, God acts with us in a covenantal relationship. Which means that when we are hurting when we, are, when we are lacking, God responds covenantally to us. Righteousness is a covenantal understanding. And when Paul is saying, let, let, the next piece of armor is the breastplate of righteousness. Paul is saying, righteousness is a relationship, a covenantal relationship with the God of the universe. 
So the first part of righteousness is justice. The secondary part of righteousness is covenant. Now, this is, that's the Old Testament understanding of covenant. Now we kind of come into the New Testament. But here's the thing with righteousness. Jesus comes along and kind of freaks people out with righteousness. Jesus creates a tension. Now look what he says in Matthew chapter 5 in verses 20 and 6. Jesus is talking to the people. And of course, it's the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus unfolding teaching of what the kingdom of heaven was going to be. And he says in verse 20, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, think of this for a second, okay? The teachers of the law are the people who keep the covenant. They understand the Levitical laws, okay? There are over 800 laws that the people had to keep. And Jesus says to his listeners, By the way, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, of the teachers of the law, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you're sitting there and you're listening to that, you're like, whoa, 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 Jesus. What about uh, blessed are the, are the humble and the meek? That was good stuff. But this, this is tough, Lord. And then, but look what he says in Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So on the one hand, Jesus says, your righteousness must surpass the teachers of the law. The people go, whoa. And then he says, but you, uh, you, you must hunger and thirst for righteousness. So you see this tension that Jesus is creating with his understanding of righteousness. He's saying our righteousness must be even better than we can imagine. But secondary, you must hunger and thirst for righteousness. Which brings us to the next two pieces of that, that make up righteousness and how Jesus is trying for us to understand it. Because as you look at that, you can go, well, um, you can go, well, I, I don't understand how that can actually take place. But let me show you how Jesus kind of unpacks that. The, first, the, the, the third part of righteousness is that it is given by faith. Look what uh, Philippians says. But whatever we were gains to me, for whatever were gains to me, I, know, I now consider loss. For the sake of Christ, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain uh, Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So when Jesus says that your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees, he's not saying, oh, by the way, I want you to make sure you keep every piece of the Levitical law. But what Jesus is saying is that your faith needs to, you, you must accept righteousness by faith because it is a gift of faith. When you put on a piece of armor, when you get into your car, as you sat into your, in the chairs that you were sitting in, none of you tested them. None of you went, okay, I see the construction here. I see there's a bolt missing. I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's going to support my weight. I'm going to stand because I don't really trust this. I'm not sure if this is actually going to support me. None of you did that. Why? You just sat down because you believe that this piece of equipment was going to do what it's going to do. Well, Paul is saying that righteousness, you must trust it because it's a gift of faith. But if you don't have that gift of faith, if you don't embrace it in a faith posture, you're not going to wear it, and you're going to be exposed to what the enemy wants to do. And, of course, the fourth piece of righteousness is also right action. 
uh, a couple of verses for this one. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 13 and 14 says this. Anyone who lives on milk, being still, on, uh, still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Now, let me show you something here in that verse, okay? You must understand, and I, I know you do, your faith, your, your decision to follow Jesus, whenever that was, whether that's re- recently, whether it was weeks, years uh, ago, or maybe perhaps you quite haven't made that decision yet this morning. One of the things you need to, uh, uh, to wrap your mind around is, according to the Bible, your faith, you can work it. You can, you can grow in it. Look at this, it starts off. Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant. Now, for those of you who have had children or have taken care of children, do you know that there are appropriate foods based upon their age and stage? So, for example, a newborn baby, milk. Why? Because that's what their digestive system is, 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 can work through and, and can take the nutrients from. But, of course, then, eventually, you give them this green gooey pea thing in that jar there and that you wonder why the kid's making the face like, ah, it's like, it's disgusting. But yet, that's the next phase, right? Porridge and, and you, be, you begin to work them and you begin to give them different foods. Why? Because they're growing and their metabolism is increasing. And, and, you know, to the point that, you know, seven months in, they're eating steak. I don't know if that's true or not, but you get the idea, right? It's, uh... I actually, yeah, anyways. Paul is saying... The writer of Hebrews saying is this, righteousness is something you can grow in. That it's not just simply, oh, here, you're righteous now. But he, he says that, that the writer says that you can, by constant use, have trained themselves to distinguish from good from evil. When you become a Christ follower or when you are growing in your faith, questions abound, don't they? Can I do this? Should I do that? Is this okay for me? This is a group of friends that I, that this is, this is what we used to do on weekends. Is this appropriate anymore? And you have lots of questions. Why? Because you are now embracing a different way of looking at the world. Well, Paul says that you grow in that. And that you learn and you understand. Like when you were first in your faith, you were passionate. And you're like, ah, oh, you know, I, I, I'm going to get rid of anything that I think is going to be evil. And I'm going to embrace this, this way of doing it. And that's fine. But as you grow and mature in your faith, you realize, okay, well, maybe the, the, the lines that we put in place there were not really lines per se by God. But they're more about my own uh, behaviors. And we begin to kind of grow and mature. Righteousness is like that. It's also right action. It's a process. Look what uh, 2 Corinthians 3 says. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with every increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Remember we talked about the Holy Spirit series? We said to you, that I said to you that in the Holy Spirit, we have to, we have to encounter the Holy Spirit because his job is first to convict us, to challenge us in our behavior, but the second part of his job is to remind us of Christ because that's the transformation. The end goal of our spiritual walk with God is Christ-likeness. And Christ's likeness is righteousness. So righteousness is, on the first part, it is judicial. It is a law piece of it. That's the rightness of God is his law, his justice. The second piece of righteousness, covenant, that when we enter into a relationship with God, we are in a covenant relationship. And because of that, there are certain expectations that we can have of God being in that relationship. The third piece of righteousness is it is by faith. 
That, it, that righteousness has to be by faith. You cannot create your own righteousness. It has to be a faith, a, an act of faith to accept what Jesus did. But the fourth piece of righteousness is that it also is right action. That we must behave, we must grow in, in, in how we live and how we, how we understand. Righteousness is a multi-layered concept. But now the next question we have to ask ourselves, how does this protect Okay, great. So righteousness is all these things. Thank you. This is a great Sunday school lesson. I've learned more about righteousness. I can walk out of here going, great, I know more about righteousness. I know that I didn't realize or understand what righteousness was. Thank you so much. Why does Paul think that righteousness is a piece of defensive material? Oftentimes, we can read the Bible and we can read these scriptures and we can just gloss over them. The breastplate of righteousness. Oh, yes, I, I want to be righteous. Okay, great. And we never stop to go, what's Paul saying? Why is he using this word? Like, Paul is, the, the Bible is, every word in there has meaning. And I, and I, and I know that means, that, 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 that can say a lot, but you need to understand, the Bible is not a random piece uh, of words put together. That every idea and concept in the scriptures, it has resonance, it has, it has a sense of continuity. So Paul, when he uses righteousness, he's trying to teach us something. So he's trying to show us that righteousness is a, a multi-layered concept. Got it. But how does this multi-layered concept protect us from the enemy? Because that's the question I asked. As I came to going, okay, I didn't understand righteousness the way I should have understood it. Got it. How does this protect us, though? Why would Paul use this as the next uh, idea of righteousness? Now, the answer lies in our enemy. See, the breastplate protects the heart, right? Uh, according to Paul, God's righteousness protects our heart. See, the Roman soldier, you understand, like in, in, in your chest cavity, all your vital organs exist, right? And so, you know, you can, you can continue to fight if your arm is, is, is punctured or your leg. Like, you can continue to fight. You'll, of course, be hampered. But if any of your vital organs are punctured, you are dead, right? You, you, you are dead or you're going to be dying and you're useless in battle. So the breastplate was this piece of, of armor that was meant to protect the chest cavity because that's where all your vital organs are. And the most important of your vital organs is your heart. So righteousness, according to Paul, protects our heart. Now, how does righteousness protect your heart? Because as I'm talking about righteousness, you're going, yes, I understand. These are all great theological, philosophical concepts. But how does it protect my heart? See, on top of Satan being a liar, which we talked about last week, he is also our accuser. Whenever we encounter Satan in the Bible, and again, it's not as, 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 as much as you may think, but the few snapshots we get of Satan... Whenever he gets a chance, the first thing he wants to do is he wants to accuse us before God. Look at Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. Now, I want you to picture this. I want you to use your imagination as Barney, the purple dinosaur, which no one ever knows who that is anymore. I want you to use your imagination. There's Joshua, right? Joshua is the leader of, of Israel. He was called to take Israel into the promised land, and he's standing before God. And off to the side, Satan. And you know what he's saying? Joshua, you're useless. You can't do this. 
Joshua, there's no way that you are up to the task. Joshua, if Moses couldn't do it, how do you think you can do it? He's whispering, and he's accusing, and he's accusing, and he's accusing. Look at, at Job, right? You know, you know the encounter of Job. <laughs> this is Satan. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. But now, stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. Right? Christian mentioned it this morning, right? That, that Job said, blessed be your name, right? In, in a time of, 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 of hurt, in the time of joy, blessed be your name. And Satan says to God, he's accusing God, God, the only reason Job loves you is because of how much favor you give him. It's because of his bank account. It's because of what he has. You take that away from him, he'll curse you, God. I guarantee you, he'll curse you. Satan always accuses. And finally, in Revelation 12, for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. How much patience must God have? How much patience must God have to, to sit there and, and to allow Satan day in, day out? Like, like, just think about this for a moment. That the only thing Satan has to say about you is that you are no good. That you are worthless. That you are not worthy of God's love. That you have fallen, you will fall again. How can God love you? Accusing, accusing, accusing you. And remember... Satan's accusations are based on truth. He doesn't accuse you of, 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 of being something you're not. He doesn't accuse you of being a, uh, a puppy kicker or a, a murderer or, or a bank robber. Those accusations are like nothing. He accuses you of that which will hurt you. He accuses you of the sins that you don't tell anybody. He accuses you of those things in, those, in the dark places of your heart that you don't want anybody to know. The thoughts of the things you say, the things you see, the things you do. He accuses you of your resources that you hold so tightly in your hands. He accuses you of the failure and the fallings of your life. He accuses you of that and you hear it. And you absorb it. He accuses of your past. How can God love you when you live this way, when you did this way, when you did this thing? How can God love you? He accuses you, he accuses you. Jeff, you're the best, by the way. Thank you for keep picking up my notes here. Where's my clicker? I did need that, actually. So when we, we they're not in the order anymore. Um, let's, see what, let's see what next screen says. No. We come before God clothed in his righteousness. Look at this, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, the reason Paul wants us to put on the breastplate of righteousness is without it, we can't stand before God. And the lies of the enemy find their ways into the deep places of our heart. Let me close this morning with a passage from Hebrews. Righteousness protects us, and it protects us for this reason. In Hebrews chapter 4, it says this, For we do not have a high priest, this is talking about Jesus, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. When the accuser accuses you, and you don't wear the breastplate of righteousness, you don't have this understanding of what righteousness is, his accusations find your heart. What's the first thing that happens when you do not ask for forgiveness, when you do not go before God? You separate yourself from God. In the garden, 
When Satan uh, tempted Adam and Eve, what did they do when God came? They hid. And God said something very interesting. He said, where are you? The question wasn't, where are you geographically? God knew where they were. We don't get to play hide and go seek with God. He knows where we are. The question was, do you understand where you are now? You are now outside of relationship with me. You are now outside of the plan and the, what, what I want to do for you. That's what God was saying to them when he said, where are you? Righteousness, you get to come before God, not based upon how good you are, not based upon what you've done, not based upon your, pa- your past, but you are now clothed in righteousness, which is in faith from Christ Jesus. And you get to stand before the accuser and the accusers hurling twisted truth at you constantly. You're no good. You're pathetic. You can't even go five minutes without sin. You can't even go five minutes without that addiction. You can't even do that, right? And you hear it, and it just bounces off. Why? Because God looks at you not as you are, but you're clothed now in Christ's righteousness. Because now look what it says a little further on here. For, one, for by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. You are being made holy by the Holy Spirit. You are being made holy. And the, look at the word it uses. You're perfect. God looks at you and he says, you're perfect. You feel perfect? You think of yourself as perfect? He looks at you and says, you're perfect. Why? Because you're clothed God's righteousness that you have faith in by Christ Jesus. That's why this next piece of armor is so important. Because when your heart is protected by Christ's righteousness, the enemy has nothing to say. You're a sinner and you're like, absolutely I am. But I boldly go to the throne of grace to receive mercy in my time of need. Without righteousness, without you being clothed in righteousness, when Satan hurls his accusations, you hide from God. You stop going to church. You stop going to your city group. You stop participating in behaviors you know that you need. Why? Not because they make you better, but because it, by discipline, by growing, it, that's what God wants for you. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray. We are about to celebrate communion. Communion is the covenant that Jesus refers to. But I know this, that as I've taught about righteousness this morning, Many of you have felt it in your heart. As your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed. I just, I just want to give you the opportunity to think, to pray. I want you to hear what God wants you to know. You are perfect. God wants you to know that you're perfect. You don't feel perfect. You are perfect through Christ Jesus' righteousness. His death on the cross purchased your righteousness. Righteousness is justice. Righteousness is covenant. It's an act of faith. And it is also a process. Every day you're being transformed into Christ's glory, into into Christ's image. Yes, you fall. Yes, you fail. You're human. But God doesn't look at you from heaven and saying, what a miserable sinner. Why did I die for that one? He looks at you from heaven and he sees you and he calls you perfect. 
just think about that for a moment. Come on down, kids. Go find your parents. They'll be joining us for communion this morning. Have you ever thought of yourself as perfect? Have you ever thought of yourself like that? Let me just pray for you this morning before Pastor Marshall leads us through communion. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you that you have given us the gift of righteousness. And Lord, we receive that gift by faith. The writer of Hebrews once again says that without faith it is impossible to please God. Much of our of our walk with God is an act of faith. And this morning, Lord, I pray that by an act of faith, we would place upon ourselves your righteousness. Not because we are perfect in, in, in how we feel and, not, and, and how we conduct ourselves day by day, but we are perfect because of the, of the sacrifice of Jesus. This morning, we are celebrating communion, dear Lord, and we are remembering what you did for us on the cross thousands of years ago. And that one act made us perfect. And that one act made us righteous. And this morning, we place upon ourselves righteousness that is from God. Lord, I pray for those here this morning that perhaps feel unrighteous, unworthy, and any other unworthy they want to place on themselves. I pray, Holy Spirit, right now, You would speak perfect to each heart and to each mind in this place this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.